Morning, everybody. Hope you had a fantastic Thanksgiving. Uh, we did. It was great. It was good to not do anything and not interview anybody. It was a great feeling, actually. So thank you for making the time to be here this morning. Um, we all go through tough times in life, and uh, the fundamental question is not, will we go through a tough time? The, the fundamental question is, how do we handle them? Why do some people barely survive when they go through a tough time while others thrive? What makes the difference? The difference is, are you willing to make a comeback? And do you know how? And do you put energy in, into your life? Because we all have a setback, but the question is, not all, the, the, the problem is not all of us have a comeback in response to that setback. And that's what we've learned for the past four weeks uh, as we've heard stories of great uh, sports figures, at least well-known sports figures, and how they made a comeback, like Donald Jones, how he came back from a kidney ailment, came back from a tough uh, childhood, an upbringing where he was challenged, and he made a comeback from that to be a starting wide receiver. There's only 64 of them on planet Earth, and he gets to be one of them, uh, albeit for the Bills, but I mean, he is, and uh, you know, I just, hey, I endured for four weeks, so, and and... <laughs> And here he is, and, and he's a very humble man, and here he is in his young two-year-old faith growing. And then we looked at how the Apostle Paul did something way more significant even than Donald Jones in 2 Corinthians 12, and how he had the thorn in the flesh. Then the f- next week, we had David Tyree here. It was such a cool thing to see David Tyree and hear how he made a comeback from larger-than-life challenges. I mean, he grew up in a tough environment, tough setting. It led to drugs, alcohol, and, and uh, to have dinner with him. We had some friends, and we had dinner with um, David and his wife, Leila, on Saturday night. And see, what a man of God he is. I know many of you were impacted uh, by his story. He sat over here and said, man, I'm, during worship, I, was, I wanted to do cartwheels. I, and, and he was like expressing himself, and he's like, man, if you knew how much I held back for you all. And, that, and it was such a great thing. And to see his family, every time I see a gigantic suburban now, I think of David Tyree and his family. And we saw how he came back from larger-than-life challenges. And then we drew the biblical parallel, though certainly more significant, with all due respect to David Tyree, King David and his battle over Goliath. And we saw some battles there. Then we had Jill Kelly here, week three. And uh, Jill had a great, great story of coming back from loss. We know her loss of Hunter. And we maybe didn't know that she had a very rocky, very difficult marriage. And Jim Kelly was probably not the best husband. I think um, that would be putting it lightly. And yet Jill made a comeback from all of these losses. And even in the, the loss of Hunter and his suffering from crab A's, that, that horrific disease, she came back stronger and also found faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw how even as great as Jill's comeback was, it paled in comparison to the Apostle Paul's in Philippians chapter 3. And Paul reveled in loss because he said, if, if loss means gain in Christ, I'll lose every time. That's a loss, that's an exchange, that's a trade I'll make all the time. And then finally last week, we saw Thurman Thomas and how he made a comeback from labels from labels, you know, can't win the big one, can't find your helmet, uh, you can't get drafted in the first round, everything else, and here he is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, I mean, and it took 
many, many challenges post-career, depression, you know, dealing with drinking, whether he was an alcoholic or not, you know, not sure that really matters. And then he finds Jesus Christ and leads a Bible study in his recovery uh, rehabilitation facility. And uh, now he's a family man. And we saw how Jabez in First Chronicles chapter 4 was given the label pain because pain was in his world. And he overcame that. I mean, these were incredible stories. And I think you know this, but I can't tell you, you know, how much work was put into it by all of you and how your giving helped underwrite some of the costs. The costs were, were significant. Well, well worth it. So exciting to see all the people here. And um, it's amazing. But this morning, I want to talk to you about, easily, the greatest comeback. As great as these stories were, this comeback story um, is just, it makes that one just pale by comparison. Um, it's the comeback story of Jesus Christ, the very Jesus Christ who helped Donald Jones see his need for him, who helped David Tyree, Jill Kelly, Jim Kelly, and Thurman Thomas see their desperate, desperate need for him. He's not only the God of great comebacks in his life, he's the God of great comebacks for you and for me. And he also experienced the greatest comeback of all time. So this morning, I want to wrap up by looking at the ultimate comeback story, Jesus Christ's comeback story. So take out your Lakeshore notes, and I want to examine how Jesus' life is the ultimate comeback story. You know, in a few weeks, as we get close to Christmas, we're going to focus on Jesus' birth and how his birth was so significant. He came back in the sense that he came to earth, and we're going to examine that. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Christ's comeback from the lens of his earthly ministry. How old was Jesus when he died? He was somewhere in his early to mid-30s. He was born winter 5-4 B.C. He was crucified around A.D. 30, some say A.D. 33, somewhere in that range. And he lived about 35 years, approximately. When he was about 30, he began his ministry, and he ministered for about three and a half years, give or take a few months. And I want to focus on the last three and a half years of his life, and I want to survey it. I want to understand it, because in that period of his life, Jesus made four significant comebacks, each subsequent one more significant than the previous. Now, most scholars break down Jesus' earthly ministry, these final three and a half years of his life, they break them down into four periods or four seasons. The first was his season of inauguration. He kicked it off. He got started. He got the party started, if you will. The second season was a season of popularity. The third season was a season of opposition. And then the fourth season was a season of rejection. So I want to get those four seasons and look at each one, get some key passages to highlight them and show you how Jesus made a great comeback. So here's the first. In Jesus' first year, and this is the, these are the four points of this morning's talk, was Jesus' year of inauguration. Here, Jesus overcame... Temptation. Early on, the key for Jesus Christ was to overcome temptation. Jesus' ministry could have ended right as it began, really. 
Now, I say that, quote-unquote, because Jesus was tempted, but yet Jesus could not have sinned. If I can just give you a little bit, I'd like to have you think, maybe bring a little common ground action to Sunday mornings, but people ask the question, could Jesus have sinned? And here's how the debate goes. Well, some people would say, yeah, Jesus could have sinned, because if he couldn't have sinned, how could he have been tempted? I mean, the Bible does say Jesus was tempted, right? The Bible says he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. But others say, that's interesting. Isn't Jesus God? And the answer, of course, is yes. Then, then could he have really sinned? Can God really sin? And the answer is no. And so I personally believe Jesus could not have sinned. It was impossible. It was a violation of his nature as God. He could not have sinned. But then how do you balance that he was tempted and how could the temptation be real? Think Jesus felt the pull of temptation. He felt the power of temptation. But he did not, set, he did not get that temptation in any kind of way that was legitimately captivating because he's God. But having said all that with my little discourse free of charge, he, he, he could have, I guess, conceptually, been derailed right from the very beginning. Before he began to minister, just after he was baptized to initiate his ministry, he fasted for 40 days, probably drank water. You can't live beyond eight days without water. He could have been supernaturally carried along. Fasted for 40 days. And then the devil, Satan, came along and tempted him three times. You can read about it in multiple places. Matthew chapter 4 um, is perhaps the most comprehensive and Satan said, you know, turn these stones into bread and do this and do that. And then I want to focus on, Jesus, on, on Satan's third and final temptation of a famished Jesus Christ. Matthew 4, 8 to 11. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. So he's up there and he sees everything. He sees, he's at a high place to see, to look down and see all that existed in the world. And Satan says, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. That's an interesting question. Could Satan, does Satan own the world? No. But Satan, by God's permission, has the most power and sway and influence in the world. If God, and he could do it, but he's decided not to do it, if God had full sway over the world, would it be in the condition it's in now? People go, well, if God's... God, and how come the world's in the mess it's in? Because he's allowed, better, we have allowed because of our sin, Satan to have sway. Satan doesn't own the world, but he has the most influence in the world because of our sin and because God allowed him to. So in that sense, Satan's offer was legitimate. Hey, hey Jesus, you can have uh, sway like I have over the world. I'll be second to you if you'll only bow to me. Boy, does that sound like a great promise. Sounds just like the promise he made to Adam. Hey, Adam, you do this. <laughs> I'll open up your eyes to some great things. Oh, sure you will. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. Very strong. You know, beat it. Just beat it. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him and the angels came and attended, ministered to him. And his fast was over and he recovered. Jesus was offered these kingdoms of the world. But unlike Adam, who gave in to the temptation, Jesus rejected him. That's why in Romans it says, Adam is the first man, Jesus is the last man. 
Adam brought sin in the world. Jesus brought redemption from sin to all who will believe. And he quoted scripture. He did for all three of his temptations. Then shortly after this temptation, he began his earthly ministry. And a second key event happened in which Jesus was tempted. It's a very confusing story. Everybody's heard a little bit about it. Um, It's Jesus' first miracle. It happened at a wedding in a small little community known as Cana of the region of Galilee. And he says some confusing things. And I've just look at commentaries and look at what people say about it. They don't understand it. So I want to cover it in John chapter 2. Let's start at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, the third day could be the third day from the previous pericope or a story or account. Or it could be the third day of a wedding. Weddings in those days uh, could take place for as long as a week. I mean, the festivities for it. Of course, the wedding was, a, was an event, but the festivities could take a week. Jesus' mother, that is Mary, was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, in those days, wine was an integral part of the festive life of Israel. And people say that the God-fearing people in the Old Testament drink wine. They definitely did. Now, they didn't drink Bacardi 151. Just want to be clear now. The wine had mild alcoholic properties, and there's no doubt that uh, it brought festivity and joy. Wine is a picture of joy uh, in the Old Testament, and wine was a common fixture at joyful events. So when the wine runs out, by analogy, it's like, where's the joy? Not literally, but, but figuratively. So it was really big. I mean, the most common analogy is champagne. You know, you go to a wedding and you have champagne. The difference is that a, at a wedding, usually you just, you know, politely stick your pinky up, take a little sip of champagne, put it down, and you're usually done. But wine was, was enjoyed throughout the evening. And uh, we learn this from the story when, when, when Jesus does create the miracle, and they go, wow, he brought the best wine out at the end. Usually when people are a little lubricated, you know, not that, not that Jesus condoned that, but people would do, when people are a little lubricated, that's when you bring out the junky stuff. You start off with the Chateau, Motembleu, whatever, and then you, you bring out cheap stuff, you know, Champipple. Remember Fred Sanford used to call Champagne and Ripple, Champipple? You bring out that stuff. Jesus says, so, so she says that. And Jesus offers a very... The two-pronged response is very puzzling. He says, he says dear woman, first of all, um, it's hard to translate, but it's a, it's a term of affection, but it's not a term of absolute submission to her. So he says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Let's start right there. Why do you involve me? He's like, why do you run out of wine and why do you involve me? It's a very puzzling question. What's Jesus saying there? Again, this is where all the confusion begins, but let me tell you what I think he's ultimately saying. Jesus is saying, my ministry has begun. I love you, Mary. I called you dear woman. I respect you, but let me tell you something. From now on, don't think of me anymore as your son. Start thinking of me as your Lord Start thinking of me as your Savior. Start thinking of me as your God. That's what he's saying when he says, you know, why do you involve me like I'm your little son? I'm God. I created every grape that ever produced anything. He says, why do you involve me? 
So he's setting the stage for the fact that he's transitioning into ministry. Remember, he's just beginning his earthly ministry, and he's saying, I'm over everything. Don't, don't talk to me anymore like your son. He's, not, he's mildly rebuking her. He's not disrespecting her. Honor your father and mother was a command he created with the Trinity in heaven. But he's in effect saying, uh, I want you to understand my new role here, now that my ministry has, I've always been your God, Lord and Savior, but, but now it's overt. And then he says another troubling thing. He says, my time has not yet come. Now, if you read the Bible, you know that Jesus often used that expression to talk about a particular time. That time was when he'd be crucified and resurrected. So when he says, my time has not yet come, it could be that. But I think he's talking about something different. Certainly that in a sense, but when he says my time has not yet come, what he's talking about is my time when I come back to earth to rule and to reign. You know why? Because when he comes back to earth to rule and to reign, the Bible says he'll bring new wine, an eternal wine. What's wine a picture of? I just said it. It's a picture of joy and festivity. He says my time has not yet come where I'll really create wine and there will really be a party. And there'll really be a celebration because I'll come back and all the sin in the world will be rectified and corrected and eliminated and parsed from the whole world. And that's what I think he's talking about. He's saying, you know, you want me to create wine. It's not then. So it's, it's an end time thing. And it certainly is the crucifixion and resurrection, but it's beyond that. It's his return. And he says, my time hasn't come, but yet he still does it anyway. The water had been turned into the wine. This was the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed, again, at Canaan, Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. See, the temptation started right away. The temptation started to just cave in, just start doing what people wanted, just start listening to other people and and caving into human requests above the requests of the Heavenly Father. But he turned the water into wine. Watch this. This is key. He did not turn the water into wine to be a good little son and make Mary happy. He turned the water into wine, the end of the text tells us, so his disciples would see him for who he is and they would put their faith in him. You see that? The temptation is, let me make this wine to make mom happy. Instead, he says, let me make this wine to reveal God's glory to my disciples. See the big difference? He did the right thing for the right reasons. So how did Jesus make a comeback from temptation? We'll see this in both stories. He overcame temptation with strong conviction. He had strong conviction. He resolved to do what God the Father asked him to do. No temptation was too tempting for him. No circumstance was too trying for him. Jesus simply had a strong conviction to do only God's will. And by application, for each one of these, I want to give you some encouragement for your own life. When you're tempted to sin, do you cling to your convictions? Do you cling to the things that you know are right? Do you cling to your convictions, or do you cave in? Let's be honest. All of us from time to time cave in. We all do. So let's not play a game that I don't ever cave in. But Jesus modeled for us strong conviction. When you're tempted, that's when you need conviction. By the way, the time to develop convictions is not in the middle of a temptation. 
The time to develop convictions are before the temptations come. When you develop strong convictions before a temptation comes, then the temptation has to fight through the barrier of conviction. But if you're trying to develop convictions on the fly, you're going to fail every time. You're going to flop. Jesus had resolved ahead of time that he was going to do only the Father's will. How do you develop these convictions? Well, look at Jesus' three temptations. What did Jesus say every single time to Satan? What's the one common thread? He quoted scripture back to him. He says, the, but, you know, Satan said, blah, 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 blah. Jesus says, but, the scripture says. I mean, Satan even tried to throw some scriptures. He will give his angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot. Jesus says, Satan, you totally ripped that verse out of context. And he quoted scripture every time he quoted scripture. How do you develop convictions? By memorizing scripture and putting them in your heart. I have hidden your word in my heart, the psalmist says, that I might not sin against you. Develop those convictions. And also, remember, Christ wasn't a people pleaser. And neither should you. If you are in the people business, as I am in, I've tried pleasing people. It doesn't work. Oh, in the short run, you can appease people. I've realized a long time ago, people pleasing um, is like spinning plates, and you can only do it for so long. You, st- you love people, you serve people, but people pleasing, placating, doing what they want as a condition for following you or relating to you, huh? it's not a way to go. Develop strong convictions. That's how Jesus made his first comeback. The second comeback that Jesus made um, draws from his second year of ministry, and this is the year of popularity. This is where Jesus overcame idealization idealization. After a year of his inauguration, word was starting to spread that Jesus Christ, the one predicted in the Old Testament, was here, the Messiah, the chosen one, the predicted one. Jesus' miracles, his healings, his teachings, his wisdom made him very popular with most of the people in Israel. I say most. And with that popularity, people started to idealize Jesus. But Jesus would not let himself be led off track by these uh, desires and these idealizations. And two classic stories really show this. In Mark chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, we see it. It begins in verse 8. When they heard all that he was doing, Jesus' popularity, look at this. Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, the capital city, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, over to the east and around Tyre and Sidon, the seacoast countries. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. He's like, I can't handle this. Let's get a boat. To keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many. So that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. He's growing ever popular in this second year. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Evil spirits had to acknowledge that Jesus was God and Lord. But he gave them strict orders not to tell them, the people, who he was. People were so taken by Jesus that they brought sick, infirmed, demon-possessed, diseased friends and family for help. But while Jesus healed many, he would not let himself become a populist leader. He wouldn't do it. 
But why give orders not to tell people that he is Lord, that he is the Son of God? Strange request. He tells the demon, shut it. You know, don't say anything. Why wouldn't he? Doesn't he want people to know that he's God? Answer, yes, he does. But he knew that people would come to him just to get what they wanted, not to put their faith in him. So of course he wanted them to know he was God. But with the ultimate goal of having them put their faith in him, not to collect goodies from him, which humans are known to do. Sadly, some of the people only came to Christ so they can get something. And the same thing is true today. Lots of people do this in the spiritual realm. And I wish, wish it weren't true, but people come to our church, and they get what they want, and then they leave. A number of years ago, some lady came to our church, and it was before service. We were at the Marriott Hotel way, way long ago. And the lady saw me, and she said, I need to talk to you. I go, you know, service is going to begin in a few minutes, about 15 or 20 minutes, and I need to prepare for it, as I always do right before. She says, I need to talk to you. I need... And then she told me, you know, this guy was living with, um, broke up with me, and I'm really hurting about it. And I said, well, geez, how did you get yourself in that situation? And, and maybe this is a good thing. And it's about five minutes before the service is going to begin. And I go, look, I got to run. And um, so we'll see you in there. She goes, I'm, I'm going home. I go, wait a minute, you're, what? No, I'm going home. Really? She goes, yeah, I feel better now. And I said to myself, I don't. Man, couldn't believe it. First class used job. Could not believe it. And I was still naive about ministry back then. I'm not anymore. And sadly, that's how people were with Jesus. You know, when you bring the fish and chips, when you bring the Kentucky Fried Chicken, when you bring Taco Bell, we like you, Jesus. You're a real cool cat. We dig that. But it got worse. And it can be seen in John chapter 6, 14 to 15. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, after they saw the miraculous sign, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who came into the world. This is the one the Old Testament spoke of with over 300 predictions about Jesus' life and birth and death. Over 300 predictions were made in the Old Testament about this. And it sounds really good until you hear this part. Jesus, knowing what their motives were, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They wanted to force Jesus to be the king of them. He grew so popular that they were going to force him against his will to be their king. His popularity caused people to idealize him. They wanted to make him king so he would deliver them from the oppression of Rome, who was the world, that was the world empire in those days. To be the one who provided food and prosperity. To be the healer of every problem. And none of these are wrong in and of themselves, but Jesus would not let himself be directed by the selfish idealizations of people. So how did Jesus come back from this idealization? He overcame idealization with a greater mission. Jesus would not let the mission that God the Father gave him be subject to the desires of people who made him so popular. Jesus had a greater mission, the mission to do things in God's perfect timing, in God's perfect way, and not have people direct this. 
What I've learned in life is that no matter who you are, get around enough people, there will be people that will try to flatter you, compliment you, idealize you, and say all kinds of positive things about you. They'll kiss your booty. All so they can get something from you. And I don't care who you are. You know what this is about. It's all, it's, it's all a suck-up job. You know, I'll just do this. I'll be nice. And you give me what I want. And you have to decide, you know, whose mission you're going to follow. Are you going to let the people just drag you around by your nose and just drag you around? And some of you live this way. You're still trying to please people. You're still trying to do what this person wants you to do so you'll make them happy. And, 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 and it's stressful, and it wipes you out. I suggest you have a greater mission. You live to please God, the audience of one. You do what he wants. You please him. And if you please God and do what he wants, people will respect you. Not everybody, but enough will, and the right people will, and they'll do so for the right reasons. Have a greater mission for your life. People-pleasing is a faulty, horrific, uh, flimsy mission for life. Jesus' greater mission. How many times did Jesus say, I have to do the Father's will. I have to do what the Father wants. And he did this all the time. Decide to follow God's greater mission. Jesus did it, and it was a great comeback. The third year of Jesus' life chronicles his third great comeback. The third year was marked by opposition, and Jesus overcame rejection. After people realized that Jesus would not do everything they wanted, his popularity waned and he began to be opposed. Additionally, the Pharisees and other religious leaders in Israel were very, very jealous of Jesus. They had been the people that walked in the room. They parlayed all the attention toward themselves. Jesus comes along and he threatened their positions of authority. I think that what they did was pretty evil. But in another sense, it was kind of understandable. They were thinking, my goodness, we're, we're zealous for the law. So much of it is human-made law. We're zealous for the law. And we don't want any threats to it. And they began to divide people in Israel and dissuade them against Jesus Christ in this third year of his about three-and-a-half-year ministry. And he was opposed by more and more people as his popularity waned. And Jesus was demonstrating his authority and teaching how people would reject him. And in his ministry, he taught the disciples this. In Matthew 21, 42 to 46, Jesus said to them, uh, actually taught the religious leaders this, and his disciples caught the lesson. The religious leaders had talked about questioning his authority. If you read Matthew chapter 21, his authority is being questioned. How do you have the authority? Do you have the authority to heal on the Sabbath? Do you have authority to do this? Authority to do that? And the big question on the table is, Jesus, do you have the authority to do what you're doing? I mean, do you have your papers? Do you have your certificate? Do you have proof of this? And Jesus said in verse 42, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The stone, he's referring to himself, that the builders rejected. He's referring to the leaders of Israel. You're rejecting me. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the most important stone, the stone on the corner of the building which would set the angles and the parameters and the dimension of the whole building. You've made me a rejected stone. You're rejecting me. I'm opposed now. 
but I want you to know I'm the most important stone of the whole house of God. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. It will be taken from the nation of Israel as a national entity. Individual Jewish people have always believed and will always believe. But as a national entity, it's going to be taken from you and given to anybody else who will believe. That's what he functionally says when he says, people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he whom, on whom it falls will be crushed. That's a, another tough passage. What does that mean? If you fall on a stone, you initiate it. If a stone falls on you, the sender of the stone initiates it. He's saying if you fall on a stone, you'll be broken. There he's talking about humility. That's what you want to do. You want to fall on the stone. You want to trip over Christ and say, boy, that, I, I saw Jesus Christ. It broke me up. I'm humbled. That's a good thing. But when the stone falls on you, that means you didn't have anything to do with it and you rejected Christ, and that'll crush you. So what he's saying is one or two things are going to happen. Either you're going to trip on the stone and humble yourself, or the stone's going to fall on you and it's all over. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way, here's the key, to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So they began to plan, fulfill their final plan of arresting Jesus because of their prideful leadership. In this third year, you can see all the tricks, all the traps. As you read the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and by the way, all these stories come from those four Gospel accounts, you'll see later on in the account, you'll see all the tricks, all the traps, all the things that they did to set Jesus up. Sadly, Israel was rejecting their king. And Christ's original plan was to go to Israel first, then have Israel be a light to the nations and have everybody else believe. But they didn't. In fact, most of the world then and now, not only Israel, but the whole world, has rejected Jesus Christ and his message of eternal life. That's what he says in John 1, 10 to 11. He says, Jesus, he, is Jesus, was in the world and through the world, and though the world was made through him, that he's the creator, the world did not recognize him. The creation didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own. There I think he's talking about the nation of Israel. But his own did not receive him. Jesus was opposed Imagine it. He does all he does to prove without a doubt that he is both God's son and God's plan for eternal life, and most people reject him. It broke the heart of God. If you read Matthew chapter 23, he, he outlines seven woes, and at the very, very end, he says something heart-rendering, one of the most tender things Jesus ever said. At the end of Matthew 23, he goes, Oh, Israel, Israel, how I long to gather you together as a nation, as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. And it broke Jesus' heart. It broke the heart of God. And I don't know how you break the heart of God, but that did it. But Jesus Christ pressed on. And here's the third comeback. Here's how he made a comeback from rejection and opposition. He overcame it with divine determination. Jesus focused not on what people did to oppose him, but what on God did to empower him. He was determined. Nothing could stop Jesus. Nothing would stop Jesus. And I just have a question for you. Do you have any divine determination in you? Because I'm going to tell you something. The Christian life is not easy. Life's not easy. And if you think, well, life's not easy, I'll become a Christian, and then life will get easier. Not necessarily. And there is a, just a, a, a truth to the fact that life is hard, then you die. 
And it is true. And the Christian life is not easy. Life is not easy. And the only way, sometimes you just need some divine determination, some perseverance, some strength, some fortitude, some ability to say, I'm going to keep getting up when I keep getting knocked down. Though a righteous person falls seven times, he gets up eight. Ask God for his strength. Press on when the problems begin through his strength. God wants to help you grow more and more determined. But you need to ask him for strength. God, give me the strength just today. Few things, few things bring joy than perseverance. Think about those times where you struggled and you persevered through something. And you got on the other side and said, man, I'm glad I hung in there. I'm glad I didn't cave in. Jesus did it and it was his ultimate comeback. One more. So his first year was his year of inauguration. His second year was his year of popularity. His third year was his year of opposition. And in the final days of his life, he experienced ultimately rejection. And here Jesus overcame crucifixion. In the last days of Christ's earthly life, the plans of his enemies came to fruition. He would be crucified. Nailed to a cross after a brutal night of beatings and trials, led by one of his own twelve, Judas, the betrayer. Jesus knew this would be his fate. He knew it would be his fate. Midway through his ministry in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, he said to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. He said this after Peter made his powerful profession. He says, um, people, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're this, that, the other. Then, then Jesus says, who do you guys say that I am? And the guys sat, sat back in stunned silence. And Peter says, well, Jesus, you're the Christ. There's some living God. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. Now that you've acknowledged this, let's get some things on the tables. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I will be betrayed by Judas, led to a cross by religious leaders, and allowed to die for all people. And it's important to understand this, that Judas did not kill Jesus Christ. Religious leaders didn't kill Jesus Christ. The nation of Israel didn't kill Jesus Christ. Our own sins didn't kill Jesus Christ. We, our own sins necessitated his death on the cross for forgiveness. But who ultimately killed Jesus Christ? God did. God killed himself. Deicide is a term. God the Father killed Jesus Christ. As much as it pained him, the Bible says there's another dimension, it pleased God that Jesus would be crushed for our sins. And ultimately, Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life. It was part of his plan to save people from sin. But it also set up the greatest comeback ever. John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus said to her, after um, Mary and Lazarus and the story of how he would rise, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Even though he dies physically, he will live eternally, spiritually. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And this sets up Jesus' final comeback. He overcame crucifixion with resurrection to life. It's the greatest comeback. No comeback can be greater than Jesus Christ rising from the dead, a still, lifeless body, potentially up to three days, rigor mortis setting in, whatever. An incredible comeback happens. 
Jesus Christ is animated in the very same body in which he was crucified, beaten, spit upon, tortured. And he rises again in a glorified body. So stunned were disciples, so I can't, can't believe it. No, I don't believe Jesus rose. I got to see it. Thomas says, I'll only believe it if I can touch the wounds. Jesus says, go ahead, right here. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. It's the greatest comeback ever. And it's a comeback he made for all of us. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, his arms were wide open to say, I'm ready for you. I'll welcome. I think his arms being wide open is a picture of his wide open love for the world. For God so loved the world. Not certain people, not people in America, not just Jewish people, but everybody. If you believe in him with your head and receive him your life, the Bible says you'll have a resurrection too. Someday, Jesus Christ is going to come back. Literally. From all his comebacks, and he will come back. He'll come back first to take every Christian, dead Christians first, and then alive Christians, and resurrect them. And then he'll come back to rule and reign on earth shortly thereafter. So the question is, like, will you be ready for that comeback? Will you be? When he comes back, will you be ready to make your own comeback? You heard four live stories right here. You heard Donald and David and Jill and Jim, her husband, and Thurman. And they made comebacks. So that when Jesus comes back, because of all of his comebacks, you'll be ready to make a comeback. And my hope and prayer is that you will be. I could keep talking, but you probably want to take a nap right now. And so I want to, but I do want us to do a little business here. So let's just bow our heads. And I want to ask you just a couple questions before I pray for you. What do you need to come back from? For these five weeks, I wonder which story you identified. I wonder which issues surfaced in your life that you need to come back from. What do you need to come back from? Do you need to come back from loss? from limitations, from larger-than-life challenges, from labels, from something else? The answer to every comeback is the author of the greatest comeback, Jesus Christ. He came back from the dead. And I know we know this intellectually, and I know we know this around Easter, but do we know this personally? Do we know the resurrected Jesus Christ can live in us? Just say, Jesus Christ, I believe you are God. I believe I am sinful. I believe your comeback from the grave offers me a comeback if I will repent of my sin and turn to you by faith. Jesus, with all that I know how, I trust you. I put my complete trust in you for eternal life. And if you do that, You'll begin a journey. It won't be easy, but it will be the greatest ride of your life. And for the rest of us who've already made this decision sometime previous, I pray that you won't soon forget that Jesus Christ wants to help you make a comeback when you do it His way. Father, thank You for this. Thank You for this five-week series. Help us all to make great comebacks in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.